Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friends are you all, or a select number of you, because I asked for some questions and tune and song requests, because I thought it would be fun to switch up the format a little bit and do like a radio DJ call-in hour kind of episode. And I promise I'm not going to replace the format of the show with this, but I thought it could be a fun diversion. And y'all sent me so many questions, and you sent me enough that I had more than I needed. So if y'all like this episode, I have enough questions to seed the next episode. And uh, I'll just say, send, send them in whenever you want. Just to get up in the cool at gmail.com. Uh, voicemail uh, or a voice memo is great if you're able to do that. And if not, you can just write out a question and a uh, tune request. And uh, bonus points to, you know, requests that match up with the question in some way. But uh, that's by no means a requirement. All right. Uh, without further ado, here's call up in the cool that's the best name i could come up with for now we'll see if i can find a better one before i release this here we go hey cameron as a data nerd i was wondering if you keep track of the tunes you record from each episode and if yes can you share a top 10 list of the most popular tunes played on get up in the cool i would love to hear your version of the most played tune thanks that was from Esther Wheaton. Thanks so much for calling in. I do have a top 10 list, and it was hard one <laughs> to get this list together. And I hope it's accurate. I tried to figure out how to like take my Google Drive and like turn it into a spreadsheet so that I could like make a bar chart and figure it out. But I ended up having to just like scroll through the VLC media player on my phone uh, and just counting <laughs> how many times each tune was done. Uh, and I do have a top 10 list. So are you ready? Uh, drum roll. First, or actually let's go 10 to one. That's how people normally do this. So the 10th most popular tune played on Get Up in the Cool since its inception is Josio. It's not necessarily a huge surprise. We all know this tune. Uh, and uh, you know what? It's It's been played seven times, and I'll play it more. It's a great tune. I'm not tired of it yet. Next up, and these actually, these, 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 uh, 10 through 6. These are all tied. So I'm kind of putting these in an arbitrary order. Uh, Jeff Sturgeon. Uh, this is a great Salier tune. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, uh, Jeff Sturgeon's like the tune that I teach to like introduce Kentucky crookedness and also to introduce like modal tunes, old time modal stuff. Uh, next we have Happy Hollow. Greasy Coat and Farewell Tryon. So I was pretty impressed by this, uh, you know, 10 through 6 um, because they're not the most chestnutty tunes. I, I would say that Greasy Coat is probably the, the most chestnut of all of them. Um, maybe with uh, maybe with Josio coming in a close second. And the rest of them I feel like are uh, more or less you know, popular old time deep cuts that, you know, like people know Arkansas Traveler and 
and Turkey in the Straw and tunes like that, uh, who don't play old time music. And I feel like those are the ultimate tunes. And uh, I'm surprised that they didn't really make uh, a showing in this top 10 list. Okay, so tied for fifth place and fourth place are Lost Girl and Grey Eagle. I know you might be wondering, Grey Eagle, there are so many different versions of that. And what I have to say to that is I didn't necessarily go through and make, (laughs) I feel like all Grey Eagles are basically just Grey Eagle. So I think there's some old time Grey Eagles in there. And then there's some, you know, there's some C major Grey Eagles or slash A minor Grey Eagles, some A major ones. Yeah, I think they're all basically the same tune. I feel good about keeping them all together. So those are tied with eight each. Uh, Coming in in third place at nine times throughout the life of the show is Squirrel Hunters. This one's not a surprise to me. Uh, I I feel like we've played it even more than nine times, but I guess it's only nine. Uh, This is a total chestnut of a tune, uh, in, in my experience. Anecdotally, everyone plays Squirrel Hunters. All right, and second place with 11 times throughout the course of the show. And this one is maybe more of a controversial one. Uh, Billy in the Low Ground. Uh, This includes the um, Romero back up and push Billy in the Low Ground. I think it's it's either in cross or in like calico tuning. Uh, And the like C major Billy in the Low Grounds. Um, I... I think that they're the same tune, basically, and uh, I think it makes sense to put them together, but I think some people would maybe have issue with that. But I think they have the same basic uh, DNA, they have the same anchor points in the tunes. I, I just think it makes sense. Okay, and the number one tune that's been played the most out of any of the tunes played on Get Up in the Cool. It's been played 16 times. And again, this might be a little controversial, (laughs) is Cumberland Gap. Uh, Now, of course, Cumberland Gap is more of a family of tunes. But I think that all the Cumberland Gaps are similar enough that, I don't know, I think you should count them all as one tune. They basically all follow the same format. So... um, I didn't necessarily check, but I think a fair amount of these are are the you know the three part D major Cumberland Gap uh, that we all play at the festivals. Uh, a few of these are the like two part D major Tommy Gerald uh, Cumber- Cumberland's Gap. Um, two or three times we played the um, uh, the Possum Trot String Band version. Um, which I recorded with uh, Tall Poppy String Band. And I would say that's probably my favorite Cumberland Gap. Uh, but because it's been so represented on the show and because I want to offer an alternative Cumberland Gap to the regular programming, uh, I thought that a good Cumberland Gap to feature here would be the Marion Reese Cumberland Gap, which I would say is like a tied, almost tied for first, maybe a very, very close competitive second to the Possum Trot string band version. Uh, it's really, really different. Uh, it has the same basic like holds and like moments of like harmonic expectation. But uh, I think it's the Cumberland Gap that strays the farthest from 
other Cumberland Gaps, maybe even more so than the Possum Trot string band version. Uh, I think I think I first learned this from Bach Bowie, uh, and I've played it with other folks. Um, it sort of got Bach Bowieified uh, when he played it to me, and he plays certain like four chords. I don't think I'm. Uh, we'll we'll see if I end up doing that. <laughs> playing those specific chord moments. Uh, but when you listen to Marion Reese play it, it's uh, almost like a one chord tune, maybe with some quick five turns around. So uh, yeah, let's, uh, I'm, I'm going to play it. Here it comes. you go that's the most popular tune on get up in the cool cumberland gap probably not the biggest surprise <laughs> some of those were a little surprising but uh yeah cumberland gap it's uh well represented on the show and there are so many versions that uh i never get tired of it so maybe uh write in and uh for request your favorite version of cumberland gap that you don't think has been featured on the show. I almost played the Alan Sisson version that Jason Cade brought on because that version's really cool. Yeah, tell me about your Cumberland's Gap. Uh, maybe I'm missing out on some. And I can play it for the next call up in the cool. All right, let's get on to the next question. 
Oh, hey, Cameron. So what are the major take-homes you've learned from your podcast within the podcast? And how can we instill a love of traditional music in our young ones? Thanks. That comes from Dylan, last name withheld. And uh, they also requested uh, Blackjack Grove in A, which is a tune that I don't know if I've ever played it. So I'll, I'll play that after I answer this question. Uh, yeah, the the podcast within the podcast. Uh, I By the way, I got that little bit from um, My Brother, My Brother and Me, which is one of my favorite podcasts. It's a very, very silly and irreverent podcast. Maybe not to everyone's liking who would listen to this show, but I like it a lot. And they have this... <laughs> This segment in the show called Munch Squad, where they uh, they feature um, uh, press releases from like fast casual uh, dining establishments and corporations, uh, and make fun of them. And that's the whole like segment. Uh, so for some reason, that was a sticky idea. That like it's a podcast within a podcast. Uh, so I think I might be phasing out that language because uh, I want to ask some of these questions a little bit differently uh but yeah old time music families kids music appreciation all that stuff um so i think what i've learned is that the people who still enjoy music who grew up playing music uh, seem to be the people who had the least amount of pressure put on them to play music and I've run into uh, plenty of guests who still play music and I think still enjoy music, but have a really complicated relationship with music because of the pressure that was put on them as kids. Uh, Tatiana Hargraves and Megan Lynch Chowning come to mind. Uh, and I can think of uh, a handful of other people that I know that maybe I won't name here who when I see them at festivals, they're not really playing music. They're with their people, you know, musicians, but they're mostly just sort of like hanging, uh, hanging around. <laughs> and uh, there seems to be like a little bit of a, of a disconnect, I think, between the pleasure of, of music for them and the musical community that they have. And I think that's probably because of uh, you know, histories of like a bunch of pressure to be musical all the time. And I think there's like something kind of beautiful about being able to take music music for granted. And it doesn't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily have to be a problem. It's just sort of like a, a thing you do just like uh cooking a meal or something like that. Um, and I think that's a deeper kind of appreciation uh, and not necessarily a dismissal of music or a disconnection from music. But yeah, uh, I know that some people have just like, you know, tricky relationships with it because of the stress that they received in their household. Um, however, another thing that I've learned is that kids are going to be interested in the things they're interested in. And just because a kid isn't naturally interested in music doesn't mean it's not going to be a valuable experience for them to play music uh, or to be uh, encouraged or uh, <laughs> lightly forced to uh, learn how to play music. Uh, I feel the same way about, um, I don't know, learning another language, 
which should also be normalized in our culture, just like playing an instrument or singing or dancing. Um, you know, it's not necessarily everyone's favorite thing. It's just a good thing to know how to do. And you don't have to like have this like reverent spiritual connection to music or a narrative that it's important in some way. Uh, but it's still like a good thing to be able to do. So that's something I've been trying to like keep in mind as I've been, uh, raising young people to be musical people. Uh, just like having the expectation that they'll understand music and appreciate it and be able to do it if they want. Uh, but not, not putting the pressure on them to have a certain kind of reverence or attitude about music or to, um, put it in front of other creative pursuits or even just like (laughs) passive leisure, uh, which is like really, really important. Something I've, uh, noticed a lot with, uh, my eight year old is that, um, he's, he's just like tired all the time, just from like going to school all the time and like having homework and, uh, also just having a, a body that is just like expending so much energy uh, in every minute of the day, um, and growing constantly. It's just like exhausting. And, uh, yeah, I guess I forgot (laughs) how hard it is to do that. Yeah. Kids like really need, uh, rest and they need self-directed time. And I guess the thing that's difficult to balance is, uh, directing some of your, you know, kids time and letting them direct their own time. Uh, because at a certain point it could be, you know, neglectful (laughs) to not direct their time enough or give them enough external structure because, uh, we need that too. Uh, and we're, I mean, even me as an adult, like I'm, I need external pressures on me in order to function. Maybe not every adult is like that. Uh, yeah. So that's the stuff I'm thinking about right now. Um, having music around, having it be normalized, but also not pressuring, uh, pressuring kids to perform for you or to be, uh, a vicarious vessel (laughs) for your, for your identity or your, or your pride or your interests. I think that's like the most important thing. And, uh, and also, it's good to learn how to play an instrument, even if it's not your favorite thing, just like it's uh, good to learn how to do all sorts of other kinds of skills, like cook a meal, to use that metaphor again. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Ask again in a couple years, uh, and I'll <laughs> tell you what's up then. Uh, my younger kid, Ellis, will probably be playing uh, playing violin by then, and um, we'll have a slightly larger sample set. <laughs> to, uh, you know, we'll be able to compare. I think his experience will be a little different because he's entering into a household with, uh, two generations and everyone plays music. Uh, and he'll probably have a even more like normalized experience of like playing instruments, um, than, than his brother. So we'll see what happens. Okay. Let's see if I can play this blackjack grove in a, uh, Dylan, um, said play the one in a because when i looked on slippery hill there is a lot of different blackjacks grove (laughs) blackjack groves blackjacks groves uh in different keys and i'm assuming they're pretty different tunes 
and uh, I pl- I based mine on the A version, but I'm d- gonna do it on the tack head uh, because it's gonna sound cool <laughs> that way. But it'll be in a different key out of necessity because I want to keep the A shape. All right, here it goes. tune dylan thanks for the suggestion i'm gonna probably work that into my repertoire it was really fun uh i love modal tunes that have major and minor sevenths and have uh uh perfect and augmented fourths uh and uh yeah that's (laughs) that's really fun and spooky Uh, and it was really fun to play on the tack head so thanks for that all right let's move on to the next question hi cameron I have a question about genre switching. You have, over the course of this podcast, been asked to play a bunch of styles that aren't necessarily old-time, despite being a very old-time player yourself, and I was wondering what you found interesting about code switching like that, and what advice you would give for other old-time banjo or other instrument players who are looking to branch out from just playing straight-up old-time. And if you're looking for a tune request, I would suggest Emile Benoit's tune, The Breakwater Boys Breakdown. That's from past and future guest of the show, Alex Sturbaum. Uh, thanks so much, Alex, for uh, calling in. Uh, that's still so novel to say that. Um, yeah, playing other traditions of tunes. This is something uh, I really got into when 
you invited me to the Vashon sessions for the first time uh, in 2020 when we did our like outdoor masked uh, recording session, uh, which was yeah quite an impressive feat to do in the Pacific Northwest in November. Um, but and more generally, I feel like I got into playing non-old time stuff a lot more when I moved out to the West Coast uh, because for whatever reason I started meeting a lot more. Scandinavian players, uh, Celtic players, people who play Canadian music, uh, pe- people who play um, Southwest music, uh, Mexican music, things like that. It's probably, I. my theory is that it's because of the Festival of American Fiddle Tunes, uh, because that's such a, jo- a genre agnostic uh, festival. And they always, they've been bringing all sorts of different kinds of fiddlers and different kinds of players uh, for so long now that I think on the West Coast, the attitudes about um, jamming are, are a little a little different and a little, a little less specific. But yeah, as far as Clawhammer banjo goes for other <laughs> traditions, uh, there, there are a lot of limitations for Clawhammer. Um, specifically... There is uh, some significant limitation of uh, how much melody you can play. And I I think that's one of the the main limitations for learning other traditions. uh, Because when you're playing old time uh, fiddle and banjo music, specifically, um, you're doing um, what is called heterophony sometimes. Uh, If y'all haven't heard this term, Heterophony means two voices, not necessarily human voices. A fiddle could be a voice, a banjo could be a voice. Two voices playing the same melody differently. So for fiddle and banjo, that would be, you know, the fiddle plays a fiddleistic version of the tune and a banjo plays a banjoistic version of the tune. And there's a pleasure in uh, the two slightly different or clashing versions um, getting, you know, negotiated together and the ways that, uh, you know, uh, some of the best banjo playing is like, like Hilary Burhans, I always say, is is the best at uh, hearing even the notiest fiddle tune and being like, take out 40% of these notes. These are the notes that matter. And then she'll play it back. And it's like, oh, yeah, that is that tune i don't know how you did that with so with such uh (laughs) efficiency uh each note is dense with musical meaning how do you do that uh yeah and that that kind of skill that um uh, that musicality it just takes so long to develop and i'm still working on it and uh with old-time music and it's really different for other traditions because uh, you can't necessarily play every note that like uh, a fiddler of a different tradition would play and so you have to figure out how to uh, banjoify those melodies if you're going to play along um, so you have to like leave out different notes because the melodies are shaped differently even though they're using all the same scales uh, they just feel and sound different and uh, the shapes are totally different on the banjo, and uh, the anchor notes are often different. The way the ways that harmony is um, uh, dictated from the melody instrument, uh, from the melody itself, is often different. And uh, yeah, 
I don't necessarily know if I have uh, specific examples at present, but um, all I can say is whenever I try to play a Celtic tune, even though I like feel like I understand the melodies, uh, when I try to like make it happen on the banjo, it just it just feels like I've never played banjo before. Even if it's like a tune that's in like a you know, uh, if it, even if it's not a jig. Like if it, if it's a reel, it's like we play reels here in the U.S. Well, not like they they do in uh, in Ireland. It's totally different. So yeah, I think figuring out the rhythmic feel, figuring out how to banjoify melodies, um, which notes to leave out and which notes to accent, you have to like understand the music to some extent in order to participate with the banjo. Uh, although. I think I've had some successful jams where I don't understand the tradition that's being played in front of me and I insert the banjo and then uh, it's been received with like a, oh, wow, that's really cool. That's really different. That's not a Polska, but it sounds cool. (laughs) And uh, I think that's the ultimate, you know, answer is it's probably never going to sound like it would without the banjo. Uh, and it's going to sound like a different thing, but maybe it'll sound good. So that's the priority at the end of the day. And, uh, you might, you might have to be a little, a little less precious about each individual tradition in order to insert banjo into it. Um, I guess one specific little tidbit that I will drop is, uh, your basic banjo, claw hammer banjo mode will probably have to change in order to play other traditions. So some people really like to stick to bum diddy bum diddy or bum diddy bump a diddy switching back and forth or what I call the something diddy, which is where you do a downstroke and then something like a hammer on or a pull off or a drop thumb or a slide or pitchfork stroke or an alternate string pull off, what have you. And then you do another downstroke or strum and then a thumb on drone. Um, like those modes won't necessarily work for every tradition uh, because, and, and honestly, they're not even necessarily going to work for every tradition within old time music because old time music is not monolithic and there's a great amount of, uh, of um, variation and sensibilities uh, within the different traditions. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> played with, uh, Don Minerly recently here in Portland, had him on the show. And when we were kind of like warming up and I was figuring out how to play with him, uh, he, uh, he like learned from Tommy Gerald and it's a great round peak fiddler. And he very specifically plays that style of fiddling. And, uh, he was like, why you, you gotta get rid of this, uh, backbeat <laughs> when we were playing. Cause I was like trying to like cluck and backbeat and strum on every backbeat. Cause for some reason I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And he's like, no, it's gotta be daga, 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 daga. It's gotta be this sort of constant stream of notes that are evenly weighted. And I started doing that and he was like, that's, that's better. But it was really hard for me to like adjust because I was really used to being stuck into these specific claw hammer modes. And I was like, oh, this is an old time episode. I should just play old time banjo. This will be easy. And he's like, no, I'm doing something that's not old time. It's more specific than that. We're trying to do round peak. So I tried my best in that episode. So um, 
Yeah, uh, I think that's often that's often the thing. So learning how to play in different modes. So instead of doing just a bum ditty, I would recommend trying things like bumpa ghosty, which is like downstroke thumb, ghoststroke thumb, or downstroke and then ghoststroke and then thumb, bumpty, bum ghosty, like that. Uh those can be really powerful little uh, syncopations. Um, putting a ghost stroke in the first slot of the beat, so like ghost padiddy. Uh, I should be playing examples of this. Let me get my banjo. So a uh, ghost padiddy would be like this. And then a ghost uh, or a bum ghosty would be like this. Or a, uh, a bumpa ghosty would be like this. And when you combine those rhythms, you get alternatives to. And a lot of times those right hand rhythms are the key to unlocking melodies uh, in other traditions because uh, they're going to have a different feel and a different rhythm. And. Uh, there are only so many permutations for like an old time beat, you know, it's like bumpa dit t. Those are four slots. You can fill them or not. So as long as you can do those basic permutations of how, how, what are all the ways you can fill four slots, um, then you should be ready to go, uh, up until you start playing jigs or waltzes are a little more complicated, or, uh, yeah. And then, and then the other thing I would recommend is, um, if all else fails, try to stop strumming. And when you're trying to fill a spot that you would normally, uh, fill with a strum, try to do like a single, a single string ditty instead of a full strum ditty. And, uh, that can help with some of the noise and the feel as well. Let's see if I can figure out this backwater boys breakdown. Thanks for the recommendation, Alex. Thank you. 
cool tune. I'm playing it really differently than Emil is playing it, uh, but I really enjoyed playing that. I might try to get that up to speed. That was really fun. Kind of reminded me of like half Irish a little bit. All right. So this next question is from Kate Kerr uh, from either last week's episode or two weeks ago. And uh, yeah, she wrote in a couple questions here. And uh, the first one that I want to talk about, I, I don't want to talk about for very long. The question is just regarding minstrel songs and racist tune titles, etc. So I feel like I've, I've talked about this on the show enough and i suspect that uh people of all different persuasions are probably tired of hearing me uh talk about it <laughs> so i don't necessarily want to spend very much time what i'll say is maybe check out uh, the interview i did with jake blunt where we did like an ask me anything it was back in 2019 um so maybe just search jake blunt ama and get up in the cool um because uh he speaks really knowledgeably about that um but that was a while ago he might feel totally different uh i feel different about this kind of thing now than i than i used to um yeah i think the most important thing is don't have an attitude of i don't want to get in trouble uh because the the issue here is is not that certain tunes are bad and certain tunes are good or certain tunes are inherently offensive and certain tunes are inherently harmless. Uh, it's like, you know, it's way more complicated than that. And I've played, I've played all sorts of tunes with all sorts of different kinds of people, uh, with different racialized identities and, uh, have, I've, I haven't been able to come up with like a monolithic response, uh, to problematic tunes or their melodies, uh, or even their titles. Um, yeah, it's just, I don't have an answer. I think that, I think the only answer that makes sense is figure out what you want to do. You know, do you want to keep this title or that title? And do you want to make it little exceptions for this tune or that tune? What's important to you? What do you like? What do you want? And then be ready to hold that loosely and uh, maybe get challenged on your ideas. I, at the end of the day, I feel like that's the, that's the only way <laughs> to move forward because there's, there's no way to not get in conflict with other people. And uh, you know, American music is American history and American history is like so complicated and people have so many uh, big feelings about it and rightly so. So I think that's the big thing is like figure out what you want to do and uh, try to hold your desires loosely and be open to the idea that you might change your mind one way or the other uh, and just be ready to change. That's, that's the, <laughs> that's the biggest advice I, I think I can give is just be ready to change and be ready to be in conflict uh, because that stuff's unavoidable. I think the basics, you know, like don't say the N-word. <laughs> don't sing the N-word. Uh, you know, that stuff is like important. Um, and uh, other than that, and like don't try to hurt anybody's feelings um, or any, especially any like anyone with any sort of uh, minoritized identity. Um, yeah, be cool. Try to like be, try to create a space that's like, 
welcoming um, without centering, you know, your own anxiety about uh, offending anybody. Um, so I've I've done that before, <laughs> and I think I've made I think I've made it worse by being too afraid of like getting in trouble or doing the right thing. And uh, yeah, I don't think that's actually. I don't think people want legalism from us for the most part. I would also just like to suggest that uh, in general, people should focus on material justice as opposed to just focusing on symbolic acts of justice. Uh, I think the symbolic is very important or else I wouldn't be playing music and making my career oriented around music, which is like basically just symbols. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, and, and the symbolic is important for like community building and coalition building. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, reparations, paying reparations, mutual aid, uh, that kind of thing is going to go a lot farther to making things different than, uh, than the way that they are right now. Hope that makes sense. Uh, thanks for that question. It was good to have an opportunity to talk about that in an updated way because I feel a little differently about it now than I used to. All right, and then Kate had another question. Pronouns, for those of us who really genuinely care, this is Kate speaking, it's tricky sometimes to incorporate and get accustomed to they, them in particular and use it appropriately in sentences. I keep finding my tongue tripping over what I've always known to be bad grammar. Uh, going from he to she is much easier than they, them. Oh, and then um, she kind of goes on for a while and like get, goes into a bunch of specifics, but I think I can answer this in, in a little bit of a simpler way. That's also maybe kind of challenging some of the premises <laughs> of the question uh, in good faith. I hope that is cool with you, Kate. Um, so I've heard this a lot, this uh, complaint or frustration over like trying to use they them pronouns. Uh, and I think it's it can be a bit of a, a pretense for something else, like this idea that it's like not grammatically correct or it's like messing with the the natural way that we speak and i would challenge that by saying that everyone that i know i don't i don't know anyone who who says he she he slash she like in speech everyone uses the hypothetical they for the singular they um i just got back from the doctors what did they say we don't know if the doctor is uh, a man or a woman or otherwise, you know? So like, we're all used to doing this grammatically. We understand the rules, but when it comes to applying it to someone that you see or someone that you know, uh, it feels different, but the issue isn't grammar. The issue is we feel <laughs> like entitled to uh, knowing someone, to being able to organize people into camps of like, are you a man? Are you a woman? It makes us uncomfortable to not know how to regard someone because our whole society is organized around putting people into different categories. And I don't think it's, very surprising at all that uh, a lot of people are really sick of that. Um, and not just uh, non-binary people like me. I think a lot of cisgender people are really tired of that too, uh, because uh, it sucks. 
<laughs> it's a huge bummer. And, uh, you know, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great if we were regarded for our personhood first, uh, and then our gender or, and then our race or whatever, our ability, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, but usually, um, those things are weighted more than our personhood. Uh, so that's kind of, that's my answer to that is you already know the grammar. You, you use this grammar all the time. Uh, yeah, I've, I've literally, I, I've, I've never met anyone who says he slash she in speech. Everyone uses the singular. They for hypothetical people, you just have to treat everyone <laughs> like a hypothetical person. Uh, you know, I guess what I'm being tongue in cheek, but like, you don't know you know, someone's, uh, gender identity, even if you can see them, you know, so that's, that's the idea. And then some people want to like, keep it there. They just want to stay at the, they, them level. And, you know, once they're observed, they don't want to then be put into a category. So use the grammar, the grammar you already know. And, um, I would say that the place where the effort needs to be expended isn't uh, speech, but it's the, you know, the way you think about the people around you. Um, and this is a way that we're all like taught to think and not just about gender, um, or, um, heavy air quotes, biological sex, which again is another construct. I'd recommend, uh, reading gender trouble by Judith Butler. Uh, I say I rec- I'd recommend it. It's actually kind of a tough read. <laughs> maybe like follow a look that Menon on, uh, Instagram, uh, maybe start there. Uh, but, uh, 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 Judith Butler says um, that the the common belief is that biological sex is, came first as a concept in discourse, and then it was followed by gender. And they make the case, Judith Butler does, that uh, it's actually kind of the other way around. We had um, cultural gender constructs first, and then we tried to reify those concepts uh, with science. And uh, this isn't the first time that like uh, science has been led astray by cultural ideas, by discourse. We try to describe things in like the way that they are objectively, and it's really hard to overcome our paradigms because they go so deep. So uh, Kate asked for for a tune. Um, She said, so then I got to wondering, since you asked for a song or a tune, is there one that would go with this? Maybe a song with a lot of pronouns that could be switched to all they, them pronouns, maybe like this one. And then uh, she gave me this link to Oh How She Lied, uh, which is by the um, uh, Joe Foss and his Hungry Sand Lappers. And I think the tune title is actually Oh How He Lied, but on Slippery Hill, it's labeled as Oh How She Lied for some reason. So Kate was recommending that I sing this song, but do a bunch of pronoun switches. And I... I'm not going to do that for this song for a couple of reasons. One, because I have a better song for that, that I'm, and I'm going to do that later, and it ties in with someone else's tune recommendation. So I'm going to do this, and I think I have a song where it really works. This song, though, uh, uh, Oh How He Lied, it, this, is, this, is not a, <laughs> this is not a song where it, it really like makes sense to just like swap out the genders of the people in the song because... This is a, a profoundly gendered song, and uh, it's going to feel weird if you just change out 
all the language. Um, this is a, a song about uh, like the like normative uh, sociopathy of uh, patriarchal masculinity, and uh, and it, and it's also about the like learned passivity of like femininity within the context of patriarchal structures uh and uh it's tragic and i feel like it's like meaning and potency would be totally lost uh by changing out the pronouns so i i i appreciate the idea for just swapping them out i want to do this song as it's written because i think it's it's better that way. And thanks for introducing me to this song. It's really interesting and it's funny. And it's also like tragic and hard to listen to. And uh, yeah, here it goes. Oh, how he lied. Don't ask me why I look worried. Why there are tears in my eyes I'm just a girl who's falling in love To one of those heartbreaking guys He told me he loved me And oh how he lied Oh how he lied Oh how he lied My poor heart is broken And oh how I cried He made a fool of me He told me my money would lead me astray just to protect me, he took it away He said he'd return it on some rainy day But oh, how he lied to me He said goodbye, Miss Bellina Last night as he started to go He whispered, my Lena, my dreams have come true But my name's not Lena, it's Lou He told me he loved me, and oh how he lied Oh how he lied, oh how he lied My poor heart is broken, and oh how I cried He made a fool of me He wanted to see Washington, someday he said so I loan him the money and says, go ahead. But someone's just told me George Washington's dead. Oh, how he lied to me. He said he loved children when the wedding was set. Nice baby carriage I went out to get Been married ten years, we ain't used it yet Know how he lied to me <laughs> I can't believe how uh, unhinged that song is That's so intense I was expecting when I first started listening to this song That it was going to be, you know, about like uh, A little bit of a philanderer A man who like is uh trying to flirt with too many people or hooking up with other people someone who's cheating uh but this song isn't about that it's about uh a man who is like uh gaslighting this woman and like taking her money and just sort of pathologically lying about everything and uh, uh the ultimate um 
the ultimate tragedy of this song is you kind of when you're listening to it you're like dump him girl you know <laughs> like but at the end she says oh and we've been married 10 years that's like the plot twist i didn't dump him and that's i think kind of like the ultimate tragedy it's like uh for whatever reasons internally or externally she didn't feel like she was able to make that happen uh and i think this is a fictional song uh but um I don't think it's describing a thing that is like uncommon even today. It's just uh, putting up with um, the worst treatment. And uh, yeah, that's why I think this song is like, you know, it's, it's about the gender. It's not about two people of indeterminate gender. This is a highly gendered song. And like, I, I think this kind of song is, is better kept as is. Um, But I have a couple other, uh, examples of um, songs where I think things can be changed in a way that's interesting. Um, when I had Nick Garris on the show last uh, for our bonus track, he uh, he d- he did a version of uh, Gaither Carlton's uh, "Lonesome Train," and that's a really great uh, duet. I'm really happy with how that turned out. Most of y'all haven't heard it because it's on a bonus track. Patreon.com/slash Get Up in the Cool if you want to hear bonus tracks and. Uh, I really appreciated how how Nick um, changed some of the lyrics um, to make it gender non-specific. Um, I don't remember what the genders are in the like Gaither Carlton version, but there's a lot of versions of this tune where it's like uh, "little girl" is appended on the end of you know the sentences. And uh, um, yeah, in this version, in Nick's lyrics, uh, he not only changes the gender to be indeterminate he also uh very subtly but effectively like dismantles some of the like uh, mononormativity of like you know, there's one person who's the one i think he's able to really gracefully make this song both beautiful and sensitive and like subversive which is his you know magic trick every time he uh gets in front of a microphone and gets on stage so uh, yeah, I thought I would. I thought I would play that. Uh, here it is, uh, Gaither Carlton's "Lonesome Train" with some edits from Nick Garris. <laughs> Darkest night 
I ever saw The day I left my home The day I left my home If two best friends must part someday And why not you and I Why not you and I All right, we got one more question. This is normally where the, like the bonus track would be, uh, but I'm doing this in a different format. Uh, I'll post this in the bonus track blog, this last tune, but uh, this is this one's on me. <laughs> Uh, so before we get to that, thank you so much for writing in, calling in, leaving me your voice memos. Uh, I, I would love to do this again. Uh, if y'all want to just send your questions and tune requests in to get up in the cool at gmail.com, you can either write a question or leave uh, a voice memo using the like voice memo app on your phone or however it is that you do that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I would love to do this again and I would love to get around to the questions that I was unable to answer this time. So thanks everyone. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this little diversion. Here's the last question from an anonymous question asker. So if I pick up a banjo and I don't have a particular tune in mind, the same favorite tunes come tumbling out over and over and over again. And I have one for every key. I'm wondering if the same sort of thing happens to you. And if so, I would love to hear one of your go-to tunes. Thanks. Yes, absolutely. I love Shady Grove, specifically the the major one, kind of based on the, the Kilby Snow auto harp version, which I hadn't heard until very recently. And I'm obsessed with that recording now. It's uh, it's amazing. I never heard anyone play the auto harp like that. Uh, so uh, my version has been pretty folk processed. I just learned it at festivals, and uh, I I really like I really like this tune. I think it's really pretty. I like the 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 harmony, the chords of it. And when I'm playing my uh, five string steel string fretted banjo, I really like playing in f out of standard g tuning with like an f or an a on top and uh, i really like singing this version in this tuning and in this key so uh before i play that uh thanks again everyone and uh you know look in the show notes for links to all all of the things support the show patreon.com slash get up in the cool and uh come back same time next week to get up in the cool Me a brand new dress, neither black nor brown. The color of the stormy skies when the rain come down. Shady Grove, my little love. Shady Grove, I say. Shady Grove, my little love. Bound to go away.
seen my shady grove They were standing in the door Shoes and stockings in their hand And they were bare feet on the floor Shady grove, my little love Shady grove, I say Shady grove, my little love Bound to go away Wish I had a banjo string made of golden twine Every tune I play on it, I wish that they were mine Shady Grove, my little love, Shady Grove I say Shady Grove, my little love, bound to go away